Principal Matters Podcast, episode 360. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're going to talk about creating resilience in learning and leadership with my special guest, Cheryl Stepp. Cheryl Stepp has extensive knowledge regarding the impact of adverse childhood experiences. She has experience training and coaching others about the impact of trauma and a framework of strategies that build a foundation to respond to and empower people. This helps create an environment of collective well-being. She also consults with leadership to use these strategies and build trauma, inform schools and agencies. Cheryl brings real-world experience and stories to her training from her 17 years experience working in Oklahoma public schools as a counselor. She is certified in traumatic stress studies by the Trauma Center and the Trauma Research Foundation and in ARC, Trauma Treatment for Children and Adolescents. She's a licensed professional counselor and a nationally board-certified counselor and school counselor, and she has established her own training and consulting company called Creating resilience. Cheryl Stepp, welcome to Principal Matters podcast. I like to ask my guests to fill in the gaps on that intro and tell listeners something else they may be surprised to know about you. I have a a very strange surprise a lot of people don't know about me that my very, very first career as an adult was training horses and riders. That's so cool. Yeah, it was very cool, but it was a school psychologist that used to watch me interact with the students that I taught, and he was an adult, and I taught him, and and when he knew that I was leaving um, that job to go up north around Cornell and Syracuse University with my husband, he said, you need to, you need to get into work with children. You need to be a psychologist or a counselor or something, because the way you interact with kids and work with their personalities, and, and um, you need to do work with them. So that's what started my career off. And uh, then we, several moves later, ended up in Stillwater, and I worked for five years at Mud Rock, Oklahoma, which was a pre-K through 12th grade school, and I was the only counselor there, so I did classes, and I did all the testing, and I was the therapist for the alternative ed school, (laughs) I did it all, and we had about 550 kids, and I moved from there into Stillwater to um, an elementary school that I knew very well, just I knew a lot of the people there. I'd done some private therapy there and knew some of the staff there. And I was there for 12 years. And that was just a a brilliant um, place to be. And then spent two years in Kansas City at Trauma Smart, which some people, since you have people from all states, um, some of those states have seen Trauma Smart come in, especially to Head Starts. That's where it started. Uh, and I worked with them for a couple of years. And that's what really got me. Um, into the heart of this work. Well, thanks for the introduction. And I want to set some context for Principal Matters listeners, because several months ago, for those listening, um, I had a guest, Dr. Brooke Tuttle, which was episode 343, who talked about supporting resilience and the work that she does at OSU's um, Center for Resili- for Family Resilience. And she connected me with you, Cheryl, and said, you've got to connect with Cheryl. We partnered together. And so we started conversations about the work that you've been doing in trauma-informed strategies for schools, not just in Oklahoma, but across the U.S. And it didn't take me very long to say, we've got, we've got to 
introduce you to Principal Managers listeners. So Cheryl, thank you for the opportunity to introduce you to this audience because so many of the people that listen are either current leaders or aspiring leaders or experienced leaders in school settings and having someone with your experience in school counseling, but also in supporting schools is something I really want to talk about with you. So let's transition to your work serving students directly. How did you get involved in your work with resiliency and especially with trauma-informed care? So the the school I worked with in Stillwater, um, we didn't know it because there was no such term at the time, but we were very trauma-informed. We did not know that. Um, when I left that um, job to follow my husband on his job to Kansas City and work with Trauma Smart, that's when everything kind of fell into place. And I began to really understand what we had been doing and why it was working so well. So the the what we had going with our schools, we had a great team of teachers that were very close-knit. In fact, some of our teachers went on vacations and things together. Their whole families would go on vacation. So a very tight-knit community of teachers, a lot of trust. Um, a lot of shared responsibility between the principal and myself and other teachers. And we set up an environment where um, when children were having difficulty with their emotions, they would come to my room or a couple other rooms. We actually had a room that was staffed by two brilliant um, people. We were lucky enough to have them that really understand regulation and emotions. And we would help the children calm, the students calm, and then take them through some practices of what was happening and um, you know what happened within the classroom and did you want that to happen and things like that. And it just set up this environment where students felt like they were valued, they were understood, they were heard, and they also had a space that they felt safe that they could go to if they were really frustrated or they were really sad or sometimes just really even just super excited about something and they couldn't control their body. Um, so that piece was in place. And when I got to Trauma Smart and I started learning about um, the brain a little bit more in detail and more specifically um, the different pieces of the brain and, and what's activated here influences what's activated there. And I knew some of that, I even taught some of that in my school, um, in my classes with students, but it just started really you know, becoming very resounding in my head that this is, this is what we were doing. And now I see the way forward because the, the ARC framework is attachment regulation competency framework. And that's an evidence-based framework. Uh, Kristen Kinnenberg and Margaret Blastein have written a couple books about it. And that's what we um, formed a lot of our training in Trauma Smart on. And that's what I form a lot of my training on now also. And really what's that, what that is based on is that you have to reinforce attachment in and connection and a sense of belonging and safety in people's lives that that's the basis you have to have that first and then you have to be able to to help um, people understand their own emotions how to regulate those emotions in their bodies and express those emotions that's the regulation piece and then the competency piece is the part that um, in young children that have experienced a lot of trauma or aces adverse childhood experiences their, their brains um, are wired to, to have more connection in the lower part of their brain, which I'll go into in just a second if you want me to. But that emotional part and that survival part of their brain is wired a lot tighter. So the competency part, their prefrontal cortex, which we need to learn in school, um, has our working memory, our flexible attention, our ability to inhibit um, certain behaviors and task initiate. That's all here. 
in the front part of our brain. And in fact, children that are raised with a lot of adversity, those neural networks don't form the way that they should. And so when we have um, kids in our class, I kept going back to students that I've worked with. I was like, oh man, you know, we were just their ADHD, their ADHD, but we knew their history. And now I look back and I'm like, you know, those ADHD meds didn't work because they weren't ADHD. They were just activated all the time. They were just hypervigilant from, and that was a brilliant adaptation to the environment they've been brought up in. And now they're in this calm, focused environment, but they still have the adaptations from a more chaotic environment. So that all just started clicking in my head and making a lot of sense. And uh, so Trauma Smart really helped me understand that. And then I came to Oklahoma and I've been here since 2019. And um, I really have done a lot of work just understanding the process of becoming trauma-informed. Trauma-informed does not mean you're informed about trauma. Um, it means that you're aware of it, you're very sensitive and, and understanding about it, and you've learned a certain set of skills and put them into practice. And you use them universally across your school, not just teacher-student, but teacher-to-teacher, teacher-to-parent, administration-to-staff, that it's it's a just kind of a universal um environment that you create a culture and adaptations and attitudes. I'm glad you said that because I want to pause and then I want to transition and follow up on the last thing that you said, but attachment and regulation and competency. And I know that we're speaking to educators who I'm sure have heard this before, but sometimes I like to pause and be reminded of things that are, that should be those aha moments because so often we run up against difficulty in learning, or we run up against difficulty in behavior, and not just with kids, but with adults too. And, and so what we're running up against is this competency. We're running up against the end when we need to go back to the beginning. And the beginning is what kind of safety and attachment do the people that we're talking to have? How regulated are they? Or triggered are they? Or afraid are they? Are protected are they? And then understanding that will help us understand that competency. So with that context, and I know there's so much brain science in there, Cheryl, so feel free to fill in the gaps there. But I just would, could you in brief, as someone who who teaches this all the time and, and needs to bring this back to the center of our understanding as leaders, can you explain why it's so helpful for education leaders to know about what is happening in our brains? Yeah. That's my favorite part. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to explain, um, I give you my analogy that people love, and I'm giving it in very much brief here, so just bear with me. Um, but it, it, will, it will explain your question. So the, our survival brain, our brainstem, is constantly in interaction with everything around us. So if we're hot, we're going to sweat. If we're cold, we're going to shiver. If we're hungry, you know, we eat, digest food. And that, that reacts to the environment around us to help us survive, both as an individual and as a species. And our midbrain, our limbic system between our ears, what's between our ears, houses our emotions. It houses our memories, our episodic memories also, um, and links those to our senses that the survival brain is aware of. And then we have the amygdala, I call the watchtower, and that's constantly scanning the environment and linking anything from the environment, any sense, sight, smell, taste, touch, sound, to a memory of fear or danger. And if it's if it feels that it shoots the signal down to that survival brain and we go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, there's all sorts of different things we can talk about, but into that fight or flight where we get the adrenaline, the cortisol rush and things like that. 
So that also, those are instinctive reactions. So those two parts of our brain are constantly instinctively reacting to our environment around us to help us survive. So our prefrontal cortex, the last thing to develop, which I love to tell leaders is, this doesn't start developing in prefrontal cortex till we're three to five years old. Hmm. So you think about the four and five-year-olds that we have in, in schools, if you're in, in early education or even just elementary school and you have a pre-K, and we want these children to be able to sit still and to follow directions, you know, three or four step directions, that part of the brain hasn't even really started developing. It's very new in development. And it doesn't end developing now, they say, till mid-30s. So even those high schoolers, are you like, what are they thinking? Well, they may not be thinking very well. But that's responsible for all of our thoughtful response. So what I do is I, I explain it to leaders and educators this way. If you think about your brain as a car, you put a little twist on it. If you twisted your brain and you overlaid a car, your trunk the trunk of the car would hold your survival brain. So if someone was trying to stuff you in the trunk of a car, you would fight, you would run, you would say, whatever, just don't hurt me. But this is the key. If you're in the trunk of the car, your trunk of your brain, you're only reacting to where that car is going. You have no control where that car is going. So it speeds up and you roll back. Turns right, you roll left. You're instinctively reacting to the environment around you without any control of the environment itself, right? In the backseat is a heightened emotion, or, yeah, any emotion. So it could even be joy. It could be, you know, you're a teacher and you found out that your daughter's going to have a baby and you're super excited about it, okay? And it, it can be both ways. So if you're having a, a more delightful emotion, it's like sitting in the backseat of a car when somebody else is driving. You don't really care where they go. You're just enjoying the ride. Um, and you can influence where the car is going, but you know, you're just hanging out. Or if you're having a, a more difficult emotion, anger, depression, or um, sadness, or grief, or something like that, you might want to control where that car's going. You might try to backseat drive, but you don't have ultimate control because you're still reactive. It's only when we're in the front seat of our brain and our prefrontal cortex where we can use our working memory and learn things from the past and apply them now. And we have some self-control, it's like driving down the highway and you need to get off in three or four exits. There's a lot of traffic. How am I gonna do that? I've got to speed up or slow down and put my blinker on. All those things are thoughtful responses. That's where we want students, they're in our classrooms. That's where we want teachers to be when they're teaching. When we're having staff meetings or IEP meetings, that's where we want all the adults to be. We want them all to be in the front part of their brain. But if they're having any heightened emotion, they're going to be in the back seat. And if you want to move somebody from the back seat to the front seat, the need in the back seat is connection, either connection with another person or connection with yourself. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes like I, I get angry and I'm like, just let me be alone. I just need to be alone for a little bit and do some connection with myself. And so that needs to be really understood. If there's a heightened emotion with a student or a staff member or a parent, how are we going to build that connection in? The same is true if we're seeing what we call trunk behaviors, the fight, flight, freeze. A lot of times we want to problem solve with what's going on, what's happening, talk to me, when in fact they're instinctively reacting and you might actually be a threat by coming to them. And so learning techniques of how do we create safety in that moment when we're seeing those trunk behaviors, whether it's, again, in staff or students. And the whole idea is how do we 
set up an environment where we keep people in the front seat of their brain more often, and also an environment that is very conducive to helping those that move to the back seat of the trunk to go back forward up through the brain, if that makes sense. Because if you're in the trunk, you usually, most people, not teachers, not first responders, most people, if you're in the trunk of your brain, you have to get safety. Then you have to feel connection before you can get in that front seat and find some meaning and have verbal discussion and things like that. Um, I've had teachers with first responders that we're often in very threatening situations and yet we can still thoughtfully respond in the moment. Um, mm. But what we do have to do, which I've heard you talk about before, is if, if you've done that, if you thoughtfully responded, even though you're in a very threatening situation, you have to debrief afterwards, get into that back seat with somebody and have that emotional connection so you don't um, have long lasting impact to you. So that was wow, a lot, there, sorry. There's so much there, Cheryl. Thank you for that amazing analogy. and. Principal Matters listeners know that I I love to summarize. And um, and so I was, as I was taking notes, I was drawing a, a picture for myself of a, of a car. And in that trunk area, I just put, put an arrow that said, um, no controls, survival mode. And in that back seat, I put an arrow that said heightened emotion with limited control. And in that front seat, I put an arrow that said um, prefrontal cortex thoughtful processing and control. And so, so you're understanding what's happening in your brain or the brain of your student or the brain of someone that you're speaking with or working with can be really helpful for where I would love for you to go next, which is what are some of those techniques or strategies that can be used for creating safety and connection? Because I know those are the two help me if I'm wrong, but those are the two things that I heard you say that need to be present before learning can happen. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm going to throw in one, one other thing really quickly. Sure. And that is that um, the students who have been raised or even young adult parents that you're working with that have been raised with a lot of adversity, it actually changes the neural networks within their brain. So mm. like I said, the networks, neural networks of, of that front seat are not as well developed as they should be. And the other parts of the brain are very well, strongly developed sometimes. And so that's an important thing to remember because as you start to create safety and connection, sometimes with the students that have had a lot of adversity, it's a very long process because they are so adapted to not trusting. They are so adapted to being in a stressful or chaotic environment that when it is calm, um, they can't feel calm. Uh, it's sometimes I've heard students say to me before, but when it's really quiet and everybody's just doing deep breathing, I'm actually more scared because I'm wondering what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. So that's an important piece as I go forward that, you know, this is kind of a, it's a play and it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of work. Support for Principal Matters comes from DigiCoach and its walk-through tool. When Kathleen Beckham was a district director, she would walk through classrooms and see teachers engaging students in learning or observe elements missing in their instruction. And her biggest challenge was finding the time to give those teachers meaningful and helpful feedback that they would value as coaching and not correction. In the past, Kathleen spent hours in follow-up email exchanges after informal walkthroughs. But that all changed when she discovered DigiCoach. She now has a tool that can help her send immediate feedback from her phone or her tablet. 
DigiCoach is a fully customizable tool created by school leaders for school leaders to not only collect walkthrough data, but also ensure every teacher receives ongoing support, feedback, and coaching. It features thousands of pre-written research-based commendations and coaching tips that can be included along with your own observation comments and a follow-up email ensuring all teachers receive effective and timely support. Are you ready to make the most of your walkthroughs with a tool that saves you time and enhances meaningful feedback to your teachers? Go to digicoach.com to learn more and please tell them Principal Matters recommended you check them out. That's digicoach.com. Support for Principal Matters comes from Aptigee. More than 3,500 school districts have switched to Aptigee since 2016 for one reason. Aptigee powers the identity of your school. We all know that communication is important, but what are you communicating? If it's just information, you're missing an opportunity to build a school brand around your strengths and values. What I love about Aptigee is how they think and talk about communication as a critical component of building your brand that engages your entire school community. With the Thrill Share platform, Aptigee brings everything you need for school marketing and communications together into a single mobile app. Write a story once and send it across your school website and mobile app, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, text messages, and voice calls. By making it easy to share stories about your strengths, you can control the conversation around your brand. Learn more about Aptigee at Aptigee.com and tell them that Principal Matters sent you. But the strategies that I really work with that are reinforced with the, the ARC framework, really, it starts out. And if you, if readers or listeners go to my website, they'll see my graphic, it's a tree. Um, and the attachment is the roots of that tree because you can't have a tree without the roots. And the strongest taproot, the longest root on that tree is our own reflection regulation, caregiver reflection regulation. And school leaders are caregivers for their own families, for their staff, for their students. So, um, you know, caregivers, very, very broad. It's anybody that gives care, so we all give care. So that first strategy is that we have to understand where we are in our brain and we have to understand our past and how it influences the environment in which we're in now and how we might react or respond to that environment. And then we have to have our own ability to regulate. And there's the long-term, what we hear, you know, self-care, taking the long walks, doing the yoga, those sort of things. But what I really stress with a lot of my school leaders and teachers and staff is that in the moment kind of I call micro moments of self-care that you have to learn and experiment with to see what feels best with you so for example as we're talking um I have a little squishy toy because I'm a very tactile person and so I also move when I speak so when I'm on zoom my hands are going sometimes I'm doing this to get that energy out I know that about myself and I found what works for me so that's a lot of what this is about so to give you another example of um, this, I'm, I'm gonna ask you and your listeners to do something with me really quickly. So we're in the middle of this conversation, but I want you just to pause and I want you just to relax your shoulders. All right, I'm gonna do this. And I want Principal Matters listeners, you, we're gonna follow instructions. So maybe they're driving, Cheryl, but we're gonna encourage oh. them to pause for a moment. And so, so I do this all, right. all the time when I'm driving. I'm never gonna ask you to close your eyes. Okay, it's, so relax shoulders. A super quick micro moment, relax the shoulders, relax your eyes, 
and around your eyes. You don't have to close them, just relax. And relax your jaw and let your tongue actually drop down in the bottom of your mouth. That's it. That's your little micro moment. Oh, I almost went to sleep. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. So you, can, you can do that. You can do that in the middle of a staff meeting if you're getting frustrated, right? Nobody would even see you do that. But yeah. it's just this quick, but all sorts of different techniques like that. Well, can I add techniques. one? Yes. So, because this is something that was really helpful for me, especially in moments of um, intensity, like if you're with students or teachers or parents, um, I would... Uh, I would place my hands on the table in front of me and open my palms. And so I would force myself not to clench. And often if I did that in the most intense moments, it just, it, it did something to my emotions. It kept me from rising up. And it also sometimes, somehow it seemed to keep them from getting as escalated too. So that's, that's one of my little things, Cheryl, that has worked for me. Both of these things that we just did are, are grounding. Grounding means that when we're emotional or when we're in the trunk or the backseat, a lot of times living in the past of something that has happened or worry about the future. We're not actually in the present moment by putting your hands down. And I did that as you said it. When you do that, you're, you become, you acknowledge my hands are on this table and what it feels like. That's bringing you right into the present, not in the future, not in the past. And so is the dropping and just those quick moments where you're grounding yourself from the present moment shifts us into the front seat a little bit more. So just millions of strategies like that, because it, and I put those throughout all my trainings and things so that people experiment with them and try and see what works for them, what doesn't. Sometimes it takes a deep breath. Sometimes somebody's a muscle clencher and they have to do it that way. But that's the first piece is us. We have to create that. And, and as leaders in schools, it's, important to embed this into everything you do with teachers and with parents like even in IEP meetings having fidgets and explaining to parents you know why these are here and we understand that there's a lot of nervous energy in this room and it becomes part of the whole culture that it's okay to take a pause in the middle of the heated conversation and everybody just take a breath and just breathe for a moment so that we're shifting into the part of the brain where we can actually solve this other strategies that um I'm not going to say her name right. Jen. Jen Schwanke. There you go. Um, she, she spoke about too, is, is just um, being able to validate emotions at the end of her podcast, which is was May 17th. She was talking about how when somebody says, I'm just really exhausted saying, yeah, of course you are. And so often when we hear an emotion, especially as a leader, but even as a teacher with a student, um, and even as a counselor, I was a counselor with students and I would do this. I would skip this step. We don't stop and validate that emotion because mm -hmm. we feel like if I validate it, then the floodgate's going to open, right? But when you stop and say, it makes sense that you feel that way, or mm -hmm. if you are feeling that same way, I feel that same way right now too. When we pause and we actually validate the emotion, it tremendously increases the connection and the attachment. And it's so important to do that in the positive moments as well as the negative. So being able to just work that into your routine, into your brain. And it's kind of like, it's like riding a bike. It's hard to do <laughs> at mm -hmm. first, but you know, you see a kid come in and they're jumping for joy and you're like, wow, you're jumping for joy. You look like you're so happy today. What's going on? Oh, it's my birthday. Of course you're happy. It's your birthday. That stopping to say, of course, it's happy your birthday and not just, oh, well, happy birthday. 
builds a connection in the brain and the wiring in the brain because it's that attachment and connection pieces in the brain that we want to build back up. Um, so the other strategies that um, I had a, a brilliant um, principal that I was working with here, and she said, Cheryl, we need some de-escalation skills. And I'm like, well, a lot of the de-escalation skills are all these skills that you put into place ahead of time, right? Your tier one, your universal precautions and MTSS. And she said, well, can we call those the pre-escalation? Like, that's perfect. They're pre-escalation <laughs> skills. Escalation skills. I just love that. But a lot of that is, is building into your culture these practices of uh, talking to kids about their brains and where they are, being vulnerable, um, having places. I mean, this is sweeping our country, having calming places, which I will tell you, they're not calmed down places because that's a power over. They are calming places because that's the student taking their own action. Um, it's more connective when you say calming versus calm down. Um, having those sort of things in place, but then also knowing as um, a leader, an administrator in that school or a teacher, if I'm seeing trunk behaviors, these are some things I need to do. I need to ground. We need to do our breathing that we've been practicing in pre-escalation. We need to do our movement that we've been practicing in pre-escalation. And then the connection pieces is that verbal, that um, you know, ability to talk back and forth when they're ready or else you know, doing something with them, which I know is very limited um, in the scope of teachers right now, but sometimes it's just, you know, let's put our hands on our hearts and take a deep breath together. That's a connection right there. Um, so just knowing all those strategies to put into place that you put into your daily routines, and then when you need them for the tier two or even tier three, you've got those skills and you just jump back to them on an individual basis. Well, I want to make a reference to another friend of mine who was a guest on this show probably maybe four years ago, Dr. Barb Sorrells. I mentioned her name to you before. And the reason I wanted to just bring her up in this conversation is she's another person I just really admire um, as a resource for um, resilience. Um, and I'm looking back right now at my own show notes. She was episode 137, 2018. So that's a long time ago. So Principal Mentors listeners, if you want to di dive deep back into the archives, but something she said to me in that conversation, Cheryl, something I, I've, you and I've talked about offline, and that is, um, and, I, and I would just appreciate your, your feedback on this, but something Dr. Sorrells has said to me, and I'm not sure she said it in the episode or just said it to me personally, but she said, well, so many of the strategies and techniques that we're working, that we're trying to help teachers and administrators employ with students are actually developmentally sound techniques that have been around for a long time. We've just forgotten about them. And we, they used to be the things that we always did with kindergartners or that we always taught in education pedagogy. So you're an experienced educator who, who remembers that some of this work you were doing before it was called what it's being called today. So connect those dots for us as educators to recognize that we're, we're not asking people to do something here that's extraordinarily new. We're actually asking people to reconnect with things that have worked for kids for a long time. I feel like when we, we use those techniques, when they work for kids before, there was maybe some, some evidence that, oh, we see a change in behavior. But now we have the brain science that says, look at where the brain connections have changed. Like the MRIs that are like, 
wow, we have actually built up some more competency and we've shifted um, these brain connections that, that build connection and, and that helps, you know, increase our happy hormones that, you know, all those sort of things. So the brain science is now supporting all of that. And so what I often tell my teachers, because I've had people listen to me teach and then say, you know, I've, I've had 20 years experience and been through 20 years of professional development. And this is the first time that anybody really explained to me why I should be doing this. Like we've been told what to do, but we didn't really have the why. And it's not just me saying why it's brain science saying you absolutely have to do this. University of Harvard Center on Developing Child, Bruce Perry and all of his work, Dan Siegel and his work. Um, I can go on and on. Stephen Porges and his work all show that we have to be able to build these relationships and connections and safety before, before, and it makes sense. Could you regulate? We can, if we really practice hard, you can regulate your body when you do feel like you're in danger. But if you've never learned to regulate your body when you feel in danger, you can't. And so you have to have safety to be able to learn how to regulate. And then it makes total sense. If you can't regulate and you're constantly feeling in threat, there's no way you can pause and set goals and follow through with goals and have task initiation because you're constantly worried about what's going to happen around you. So it it makes logical sense, but now it makes sense with brain science. No, I love that. And thanks for bringing that full circle. I think one of the phenomenon that I'm running into in our work in education, especially in the year 2023, is, and I think part of it is because, especially in where we live in Oklahoma, but I know this is happening across the U.S. because I talk to leaders across the spectrum, because it's getting harder and harder to find quality education, certified quality educators in our schools. We've done a lot of um, alternative certifications or emergency certifications, which can be helpful to make sure you're finding the right people. But because we have fewer educators who have had any kind of traditional education training, they actually may know the why, but not the what. So they they may be more aware now than they were before of what how adverse um, childhood experiences are affecting the kids that are in front of them, but they may not necessarily have the strategies, the techniques. So what I appreciate about your work, Cheryl, is you bring both. You bring both that science in so they can understand the why, but then you immediately follow up with the what. And as I'm thinking about that analogy you made about the tree trunks, you know, the roots being attachment and the the, the tap roots being that caregiver who can help that student reflect and regulate. And then those, um, I, I'm, I'm just picturing this tree as it goes up, you know, those validating emotions, the, the grounding behaviors, the, the mini self-care that you can do, the long-term self-care, this is that trunk getting up. What, what else would you add as you, as you think about that analogy of other things that could go on those branches for that well, tree? Well, the, 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 um, the roots are the reflection, our own reflection, regulation, the attunement, the verbal attunement, response, and routines. The trunk is 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 regulation, the trunk of the tree, and that can only grow when there's a good root system, and that's regulation, and that's where we teach children emotional identification, emotional modulation or regulation, and emotional expression. And you have to have, they have to have emotional identification, even just verbally know the words. And I, I. I find it amazing. 
Brene Brown did a study of adults and asked them to name as many emotions as they could that they felt in the previous nine months. And the average out of 17,000 people, the average that they named were four emotions. Wow. And so we talk about teaching children emotional identification, but I think that's probably why she wrote the book, the last book she wrote, explaining all these different variables of emotions, because we, do, we don't identify our emotions very much as, as adults. And I know, and you probably talk to leaders like, well, I have to stuff my emotions. I can't show those emotions. And so just understanding our own emotions, but teaching that to children, um, teaching them how to calm, sharing tools that they can work with and, and strategies that they can work with, and then practicing those. Then, then the students, even the ones that may have experienced a lot of adversity, feel like they can express their emotion. Because if I do say, I feel angry, not I am, but I feel angry, they have control to change that feeling. And so that's the last piece in that trunk. Then once you have that piece in place, your upper branches are competency. And some of that is the, um, the executive functions I talked about, the three executive functions of working memory and flexible attention and inhibitory control. But the other one is positive self-identity. And you, you can see how you get to the roots. You have to have the trunk before you can start making goals, making decisions, and helping other people, having that reciprocal behavior of feeling like you're giving as you're, you know, you might need to take every now and then, but you can give. Now think about this in the leader's point of view, that competency piece is huge with the staff and that positive self that um, I was listening to, to something where it's hard to step away because you feel like, um, things might fall apart if you step away. But in fact, if you actually empower others and say, I'm not going to be at this meeting, could you please do this for me? It's a win-win because you've got that reciprocal relationship going there. It makes them feel good that you had trust in them. So that's the same sort of thing in the branches of this tree. And that's mm -hmm. the whole tree is my collective well-being tree that you can find on my website. Because once we have that in place with the students or clients, with all the staff workers, with the families associated, Everybody's supporting all of that with everybody. And I, I kind of think of it this way, even if one of your branches falls off, if you've got a strong root system and trunk, you can build a bigger, stronger branch. You can come back. And that's where the idea of resilience comes from is that we um, are never back the same, right? But you can rebuild. Okay. So that was so amazing. And I do, I just had to point out the obvious, but it was an aha moment for me when I'm suddenly realizing that you're your collective well-being tree just lays right over Maslow's hierarchy. I yeah. mean, it, and so there's just such a beautiful parallel. I can see the triangle of Maslow and I can see the collective well-being tree of yours just like on top of each other visually. But let me, let me make this conversation a little more applicable to the leaders who are listening to us right now, because you just said something I think that is so important, which is that if, if the roots of attachment and the trunk of regulation are present, then you can grow the, the, the limbs and the leaves of competency. I want to apply that to ourselves because here's what I run into when, when I'm working with leaders is not just the struggles they have with, is this work sustainable because of just how hard it is and how much process and systems are required, but I also run into the difficulty that leaders have with their own management of people's trauma. And you and I've talked a little bit about this before um, off, 
off recording, but I want to bring this conversation into how it may apply to how leaders should be thinking about their own emotions and learning as they're leading learning. Mm -hmm. And where they are in their car at different points and how they know to regulate themselves, because mm -hmm. that's so key. If, if, you're, if your staff feels unsafe, they can't create a safe environment. Um, if you don't feel safe as a, say, a principal with your superintendent and board, then it's really hard for you to create that environment too. And so it, it comes around to being able to have the ability and reflect on yourself, be able to regulate enough that you can then express. <laughs> you, you feel strong enough that you can express that to somebody else. And, and even if you don't get validated, you know that you have said, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I need. This is the need that I have. This is the need that my staff has. And hoping that if you can see now why the systems approach is so huge with this, because if, if the whole district understood this, then it makes more sense. If one school is trying to do it and they keep bucking up against something that's like, no, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, this is all fooey pooey. Um, you'd have a really hard time keeping it going. And so I, I do think I had a manager in a head start that said to me one time, we've done 20, I've done 20 hours of training at their head start, 250 teachers. And at the end of the year, she said the most important thing came at the very beginning. And she said, what I have changed is I spend five to 15 minutes, depending on how much time I have. And this is one of these people that gets up at four in the morning and doesn't go to bed till midnight. One of those go, go, go people. She said, I made myself stop and put on a timer for at least five minutes and made myself reflect through the day. The conversations that I had, where was I? And if I wasn't in the front part of my brain, what do I need to go back to repair if, if I harmed connection there? She said that five minutes, I'd get in my car and be able to reflect a little bit more or just feel at peace. She said that simple practice of five to 10 minutes a day has changed my life. And so it's, it's small things like that, that you find out ways that you can reflect and then using your micro moments or your longer moments, being able to take a walk with somebody that you can really stay a little bit more um, energized for this work because it takes an awful lot of energy. Oh my gosh, Cheryl, what a what an amazing takeaway. And principal managers, listeners, I just want to encourage you as you're listening to this conversation um, that resilience, creating places where students feel safe, giving your school the kind of place where learning can actually happen it always begins with us first. And so what a wonderful practical way to just pause and reflect and ask yourself that question, because I know every leader that's listening knows that there are many times throughout the day where there's something happening where you just can't give the kind of attention you should have to someone. And I always say, when someone approaches you, try to put the phone down, try to stop and give them at least 60 seconds of undivided attention. But if your brain is triggered in that those areas where there's flight or fight or something's happening that you're trying to manage, you may not be even aware that you've just cut someone off or that you have not um, connected in a relationship. So, so what, what a great tip. I'm writing that down. The five minutes ask, when did I leave my frontal cortex? And I may need to go back and repair or mend relationships. What a, what a helpful practice. Cheryl, as we wrap up, I want listeners to know how they can find more of your 
resources, how they may connect with you, how they could invite you in to their school. So please tell listeners how they can stay connected with you. And then what's the parting word of advice you'd like to leave with listeners? They can go, my website is creatingresilience.org. Just one word, one long word, creatingresilience.org. Has my email on it. Um, You can email me. It has my phone number. You can call or text me. Um, That's great. And I think my, wow, my parting word of advice, it is all about connection. Um, And as leaders, sometimes we have to take the power of uh, the stance of power sometimes. But just know, I love this, Stephen Poor just said this, every time you take the stance of power in in interaction, you've harmed the connection. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to come back and repair that connection somehow. Um, And I think that's just a, I, I look at that all across every interpersonal relationship and then you even can he he took it big and broad with the systems like our whole congress and senate was divided you know created for connection and now it's all about power and it's harmed all the connection and so that's a systemic looking at the difference between power and connection but then also in our own personal lives um, every interaction you have did you take the stance of power or did you take the stance of connection Wow. There's a whole nother episode right there. And, and when, whenever you take the stance of power, recognize how it may be harming your connections. So just be aware because sometimes you have to exercise authority in situations, but make sure that you're exercising it from the, from the position of what is the best care I can provide for others by exercising this authority, not as a power play. Cheryl, um, thank you so much. In Principal Matters listeners, I just want to encourage you to reach back. If you are interested in more resources, you can go to, to Cheryl's website at Creating Resilience. And I'll put some links in the show notes so that you can stay connected with her. Until next time, Cheryl, thank you for being a guest on Principal Matters. And Principal Matters listeners, thank you for doing what matters. We'll talk to you again soon. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com. Check out the services link on williamdparker.com to learn more about leadership academies, mastermind offerings, and executive coaching. If you're planning professional development for the year ahead, or you're looking for keynote presentations from any of my books, please email me at will at williamdparker.com. Thank you for learning together today. And thanks again for doing what matters.